Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and the treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast on the 29th of July. Hello and welcome. And in the studio we have Rob. Dot, dot, dot. I'd win. (laughs) 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 and we are yet to have uh get sorted out that problem but we also have jess in the studio (laughs) sorry for leaving you hanging rob (laughs) my apologies (laughs) yeah that's 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 plausible i think Mm. um but what have we been up to what have we learned what's been interesting Mm. it's been Uh, interesting it's been interesting we've been learning we've been learning poker I am. Uh, yes, we've been learning poker and the subtleties of the bluff. I have discovered, you know how people have their telltale signs when they're getting yeah. nervous or they've got a good hand? I've discovered that what happens, and I'm, I'm telling the entire world my, my, <laughs> my <laughs> signs, <laughs> what happens is I pick up a good card and I go, oh, oh, and then I get, I get really visibly scared that it's not going to work out. <laughs> so my confident hand is me being like, Oh no, this is not, this is not. Oh, 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 everyone's staring. Oh no. <laughs> like I start to panic. So, um, for me, yay to that. I, me when that I, a- laugh, I, cause I'm so bad at lying. I can't lie. But my approach is to look like I'm really over lying or terribly lying. So then it just confuses people. And it works. I just pretend I'm always lying and it works every time. So that's my strategy. <laughs> oh, I love oh, that. <laughs> no, see, I'm actually, unfortunately, and this is a trait that I wish I did not have, I am actually good at lying. Um, so I am. I actually am quite good at poker. And also this trickles down into the game Risk. Have you played the game Risk before? Mm-hmm. The war game. Uh, I, I am queen. Yeah, I am queen of that game. And I put it down to my also bluffing during that game because it really does help. Any board game, 100%. Use your bluffing techniques, Edwin, because I guarantee you will win. Nice, nice. I mean, I, I think I kind of at the moment am at the, at the confused strategy rather than the thing. But I find that really interesting. Also, talking about uh, military games, my partner also made us play a game of Warhammer, which was <gasps> potentially the... I'm not going to say nerdiest because that would be cruel, but like the most strategic thing I've done in a while. <laughs> I, yeah, I have yet to play that game, but it is on my list, especially because I do love Risk hey. so much. So Yeah, I, I, feel like, I feel like if you're into Risk, you could definitely hit up tiny little painted figurines shooting at each other with like, you know, uh, what's the word? Psychic powers. <laughs> oh, yes, that does excite me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, for me, so I was actually, I was just, um, when I was going to the shops yesterday, I was listening to a fascinating podcast and I actually thought that the person has a TED talk. So I'm going to put it into the show later today, Ooh. but it's, um, Deanna Van Buren, who's a American architect and activist. And so she's created this organization called Designing Justice. 
And it's all about how the importance of building an infrastructure to think about different ways of governance or different ways of not policing. So it's all Mm. about rather than having jails, having restorative centres and all these other kinds of infrastructure and how you include community within that. And one of the things I found really interesting within the conversation that I was listening to, which was making this point that a lot of like professionals, like both designers or any other kind of profession assume that they know the knowledge. And when it's community consultation, they're kind of sort of gaining information to then use rather than being like just one part of a cog that helps facilitate the process, but then the community kind of takes it forwards. And so it was nice to kind of hear someone talk about that perspective of you as a designer or professional, you're not important, but you're part of the cog. Like you have to be part of the machine for the thing to work, but it's not because of you that it works which I thought was a really good point to make. I mean, just touching on that with the idea of like inviting someone to the design table or just the concept of inviting someone to the table with a discussion. I was talking to one person who was like, this is in design context, but she extended it to like a lot of other examples. She was like, anytime you invite someone to the table when it's their table, you've inherently missed the point. The whole point is that you should be invited to their table Mm -hmm. and that you're taking part in the community's project or for example, this was with First Nations design. You're taking part in First Nations projects and thoughts and things like that. And as such, it's really like you got to check yourself and check what sort of approach you're taking. Because if you're going to the thing of like, oh, well, I'm letting them into my practice, you've, yeah. you've missed the core values and like foundations for, for an idea. Exactly. And it's the power balance that comes with, it, with that as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. So we'll play that a bit I- later in the show. I'm very excited for that. And touching onto that and what's happened in my week this week, um, I've just started a new job and um, I'm just starting to realise how much I actually do love getting involved with the community and being back on the show today, I am extremely excited for. Um, so <laughs> I've definitely nerded out on some old news. So I'm just really excited to, yeah, to be back, guys. I just really wanted to say that because I, yeah, I'm very excited for today. Well, and, what's, and what's coming up on the show. Speaking of what is coming up on the show, Edwin, what have you got for us? Yeah, so I've actually got um, an interview that follows on from a conversation we had a couple of weeks ago uh, with the Derrible Yerrigan Health Service in, over in WA. And this is um, discussing the absolute success that a lot of um, Indigenous-led or Aboriginal-led health clinics have had in responding to COVID-19. And it's when I first did the recording, I think I underplayed its value a little bit. This is community um, community organisations that have adapted themselves overnight to respond to the um, dangers or the threat of COVID-19. And just listening to um, some of these representatives talk about like what they did to make, to, to, to keep their service running whilst also adapting to challenges like, you know, isolated patients and things like that. Just a phenomenal uh, community effort. So this week I have Leslie, the CEO of the Southwest Aboriginal Medical Service in Western Australia. And um, I, I just wanted to get her perspective and, you know, what she, what her organization has been doing and it was really also great to get her thoughts on what patient and doctor relationships should be or patient and professional relationships should be and how that needs to be maintained more so than ever throughout uh, COVID-19 because we know it is such an isolating both physically and mentally you know um, phenomenon that we're going through right now so just listening to Leslie talk about how you maintain community connectivity and yeah really upholding this this really holistic focus on patient well-being so big spiel but it's uh, it's worth the time the moment in time I think uh, as it's it was it's been a huge success and it's been a sustained success 
Yeah, no, that sounds fascinating. Uh, for me, continuing, I guess, on the theme of COVID and the implications of that, um, I'm looking, I'm speaking with Naomi Fitzner, who's a researcher at uh, Monash University, and we'll be speaking about the impact of COVID-19 more on domestic violence and both the impact in terms of the perpetrators and the way that they're using this as an opportunity to take advantage of. Um, but then also some really interesting and more inspiring sort of ideas coming out from the practitioners and the supporters about how they're innovating because obviously victims can't move out of their homes anymore. So how are they getting the services? And so hearing about some of the techniques and strategy that a lot of these providers have been using, um, which I think there's been a lot of really, like, as you say, really quickly adapting to the situation and continuing to provide the service, which is incredible, particularly in these, in these times. Can I can I just say like shout out to non for profits and community organisations? They're the ones who, every single time a challenge comes up, are the ones that completely alter themselves to meet with it. You know, um, just looking at some of the more rigid institutions compared to like some community organisations in similar fields, community organisations have bent over backwards and reformed their systems to fit with the, the crisis. And I think it's just such a reminder of um, the capacity we have as organizations and like, you know, and these amazing frontline workers who adapt and just keep going. And it's just, it's been so wonderful to see. The nimbleness is, is incredible. The nimbleness. Yeah. The way that it sort of plays out and we're seeing it play out this year. It's, you know, obviously re-emphasizing the incredible value and importance within everything that we do. So <laughs> pay them. <laughs> <laughs> support Maybe them. <laughs> support them. Yeah. yeah. Well, before jumping into all of that, we should jump into some alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR. Now we're heading into alternative news. Today, I think this is a really important um, story that we should touch on. Um, Beruz Bukhani, a Kurdish-Iranian refugee who wrote an award-winning book on his mobile phone while held in an Australia detention facility, has been granted asylum in New Zealand. Beirut has been in New Zealand since November last year when he applied for refugee status after attending a literary festival to speak about his six years in complete limbo under Australia's poor immigration policies. Uh, immigration New Zealand said Pakani's application had been successful, which means he has the right to stay in the country indefinitely. Um, in quotes, Mr. Bukhani has been recognised as a refugee under the 1951 Convention relating to the status of refugees and its 1967 protocol. This is extremely exciting for, um, for Bukhani, who has waited so long um, to be granted this status. Um, as many of us know, asylum seekers intercepted at sea by Australian authorities are sent to Manus Island in Papua New Guinea, um, where Bukhani was, or Nauru in South Pacific Island. 
they are permanently barred from settling in Australia, with many being kept on the islands for years, much like um, Fahad Bandish, who we interviewed a few weeks ago. Fahad is now living in um, Melbourne Immigration Transit Accommodation and is currently pleading with the government for his rights. Um, it's just, I think this story was so exciting and so heartwarming and gave so many people suffering this prison um, in Australia's um, class. Um, I don't Sorry, yeah. I was just going to jump in here and say this is also the same week that we had Peter Dutton come out and blame the Bilua family for mm-hmm. their own detention and how long it's crossed said. So you like, we've had this amazing win at the same time we have Peter Dutton going, this family of with two daughters has cost the Australian government $10 million for Excellent something that he money. is... Yeah, which he's now money, been, which we did. Yeah, yeah, which he's he's been called out in court for, um, in contempt for how long he's processing it. So it's just like just the 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 contrast of those two news stories. It is, yeah. You see something so great, but then you see something so disheartening at the exact same time, and that is, I'm. It's sad to say, but that's what is Australia is right now. Um, on other ma- on other matters, um, I thought I'd do actually an actual update on the Middle East, um, where many refugees leave to seek asylum from. Um, With news revolving around COVID predominantly right now, um, Middle Eastern affairs have taken a backseat as they usually do. Um, Currently, Lebanon is experiencing a massive crisis exasperated by COVID. Um, Food uh, food prices have risen exponentially, garbage has piled up on streets and electricity outages have become increasingly frequent and long. Blackouts are also frequent and curfews have been put in place for weeks now. Um, Pre-COVID, Lebanon was already engulfed in protests around government anti-corruption late last year. Um, Protests were able to successfully assist the resigning of Prime Minister Hariri, Um, yet many Lebanese are aiming to reshape the government, not just put someone out of power, um, and put an end to corruption completely. Um, This has, the want to do so, has only heightened due to COVID. Now a coalition of Lebanese protesters, including activists, academics and lawyers, have joined forces to create the National Civil Front in hopes of pushing forward the aspirations of the late last year uprisings. Uh, Many others separate from this group are also on the move to keep these aspirations growing. In a meeting, the National Civil Front said they aim to form a government of independence, hold early parliamentary elections, ensure the independence of the judiciary, implement structural and sectoral reforms, um, and ensure Lebanese sovereignty and regional and international legitimacy um, to set the path of establishment of a civil state. Um, I'm sure there will be so many developments in this case. Um, also, there is the issue of people being quite scared that this will become violent and that breakouts will escalate to military violence. Um, so this is something to really keep an eye out, especially during COVID. One other story that I'm going to touch on, um, both Syrian and Yemeni wars are still continuing and have gone on for years now with no solution. And now many are worried that Libya may be experiencing or going into its own war. Libya has been in a state of lawlessness since the ouster of long-time dictator Muammar Gaddafi uh, following widespread protests. The country now has two governments, the eastern body supported by the Libyan National Army, backed by Egypt, um, and the Tripoli-based government and national accord, the GNA, which you may have heard of in the news, uh, which enjoys international recognition. Over the past months, the GNA uh, has advanced on LNA-controlled areas with the help of Turkish forces. Unfortunately, Egypt has approved the deployment of its army to its western borders, which is, has also got a lot of people in Libya scared um, that an, a proxy war will now be breaking out. Um, this move has caused outcries, with many saying Egyptian parliament approval of troops deployment outside its western borders is a literal declaration of war on Libya and violates Arab League and UN charters. 
This too, like the Lebanon story, will be an extremely important story to watch unfold, especially with the issues in the Middle East with trying to put a halt to COVID and the spread of COVID, as every single country is trying to do right now. Thank you, Jess. I mean, I'm, I'm so glad we've had your Middle East raps like come back because they're so, I mean, so holistic, so interesting to hear about a part of the world that we get such a Western-centric na- narrative on. So Yeah, yeah, I was, I was very excited to do that today. So yeah, hope you enjoyed. <laughs> Hot highlight. Um, I was just thinking quickly also on the refugees. This is a, a self plug i suppose um just talking about like the seven year long wait and sort of processing things around that i recently co-authored an article which i'll put on the rundown today discussing the fast track process which is what has seen so many of our refugees have to take that seven year long wait um as the fast track process which was brought in for refugees who came into australia during 2012 and 2013 by boat um, has severely narrowed the ability to get permanent residency. Actually, it's removed it, um, but to also apply as a refugee in Australia. So the fast track process is one of those sneaky bits of policy that's behind the refugee crisis and the seven-year-long wait that we are now seeing and that has hurt so many individuals. So, um, yeah, I'll put a link to that because I thought that article might fit in nicely with some of those stories. The other thing I wanted to shout out for alternative news was um, to NITV, which is um, one of the commercial channels uh, kind of branches off SBS and it looks into First Nations, Torres Strait and kind of just Indigenous voices and stories. Um, They've been recently doing fantastic coverage of Indigenous deaths in custody and platforming the voices of the family and the stories of the individuals who have died in custody. Now, I won't go into the individual stories as I think it's a little early in the morning to get that intense, but I will put a link to it in our rundown today and I strongly urge the audience to like look up and read an article over the coming weeks because they've been doing a fantastic job at looking into the different stories behind these deaths and really getting the voices of family and community to support that. And that's something that like when we've been hearing a lot of opposition in mainstream media, we've been hearing a lot of vilification and um, not a lot of understanding that it is systemic violence that are killing these individuals. So I think the, these, this series of articles do a great job at showing how it's like, if you had someone in a more privileged position, perhaps they would have got the more attention or more care. Uh, so yeah I'll, I'll stick that in there and I just want to also update unfortunately we are now at 437 arguably 438 deaths since the Royal Commission in 1991 of Indigenous people in custody so this is an ongoing story that that number has ri- risen since uh, the Guardian released its article in early June so it's it's something that we just got to stay on top of because it's it's constantly happening in the background and that's the problem it's in the background um Something completely different from that. My second story is actually regarding media freedoms in the Philippines. So about a week ago or so, it was announced that the national broadcaster ABS-CNNN would not have its license renewed. And this was decided through court proceedings um, at a national level. But it effectively took off what is the largest commercial broadcaster in the Philippines. And it it took them offline. Now, this is hugely significant. A lot of the, uh, the... ABS uh, CNN is actually the Philippines' largest watched news channel and is considered, although being commercial, as actually quite independent. It's the people's news. Uh, And this decision is kind of a horrible blow for media freedoms in the Philippines, which recently have been at an onslaught um, of kind of being shut down and stuff by uh, Duterte, who is the country's leader. So Duterte, leading up to this decision, has been spewing a lot of rhetoric around the commercial radio, sorry, the commercial broadcaster, as well as other different media outlets. And this seems to have kind of swayed the decision. 
This also comes uh, at a time where there's also been the imprisonment of Maria Ressa, who is a CEO of an online news source, uh, The Rappler, in the Philippines. Maria Ressa's uh, court case has been ongoing since about midway last year. The government currently have five open court cases against her. And again, this seems like an attack on media freedoms. Um, Maria Ressa and The Rappler, as well as ABS-CNN, had been very critical of Duterte, and Duterte has specifically called them out as a threat and threatened to shut them down leading up to this decision. So I, I suppose it just comes as a another thing to keep an eye on in the Philippines. Just media uh, freedoms are getting more and more challenged and more and more silenced. And in Maria Ressa's own words, it's um, the media that goes first in the step towards ty- tyranny. So yeah, I thought I would kind of cover that because I, I suppose it's something we don't necessarily hear about. Yeah, and I think something to keep an eye on in terms of the, the repercussions that it will have in the, in the coming months and years as well. In 2020, 3CR is delivering our Beyond the Bars project differently. We've been speaking to the Indigenous men and women in Victorian prisons over the phone and we'll bring you those chats throughout the week of Monday, July the 6th to Friday, July the 10th. You can also catch up on the audio from the project online at 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars 2020. We want to see our men and women out of the prison system. But while they're still there, we will give them a voice through Beyond the Bars. Make sure you listen in. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03-9419-8377. Each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03-9419-8377. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. CR Community Radio, 855 AM. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Now, in 2019, the United Nations stated that home is the most dangerous place for women and children. And so with many of us now staying home 24-7, there is an increased risk of domestic violence. So much so, the impact of COVID-19 on domestic violence is being declared as a shadow pandemic. To help us understand this more, joining us, we have Dr. Naomi Fitzner, a postdoctoral research fellow with the Monash Gender and Family Violence Prevention Centre at Monash University. Naomi, welcome to the show. Hi, and thanks for having me, Rob. So what has been the impact of COVID-19 on many women's experience of domestic violence? Sure. So when the first uh, stage three restrictions were introduced in April and May this year, we surveyed 166 Victorian practitioners who were supporting women experiencing violence during the shutdown period. And what our study showed was that women's experiences of violence during this period had increased in prevalence, severity and frequency since the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis. And we also saw that there was an increase in first-time reporting of family violence by women during those initial stage three restrictions. 
And so with the pandemic, it's also brought forward this sort of 24-7 living at home environment. So previously, victims may have been able to see support networks or services outside the home, but that's much more difficult now. How are perpetrators using the pandemic to sustain and increase violence against women? So unfortunately, what our research showed was that COVID-19 has provided perpetrators with new opportunities to exert power and control over women. So practitioners described to us the ways in which perpetrators are using the threat of infection and the COVID-19 restrictions to perpetrate heightened violence against their partners. So we heard stories of perpetrators forcing their partners to wash their hands to the point that they were bleeding and experiencing cuts. We also heard stories that perpetrators were spreading rumours that women had COVID-19 to further isolate them and ensure that no friends or families would come and provide support. Wow. And I imagine also in the process of the lockdown, if, say, people were living in different dwellings, there, there would have been pressure perhaps in those kind of circumstances as well. Yeah, so what we did hear from practitioners was that perpetrators were also using the restrictions, particularly the stay-at-home orders, to force women to allow them to return to a shared home where previously they might have been living separately. And often this is where they had shared children. So they'd say, you know, because of the safety concern and the health concerns that you have to allow me back into the home so that we can all be under one roof at this time. Mm. And many perpetrators will use technologies and phones to to track other people. How has that been exacerbated in this situation? Um, Well, as you pointed out, with the stay-at-home orders and the stage three restrictions, women have often been confined to homes with their abusers, which has really limited their opportunity to seek help because often they might not have a safe environment to make a phone call and to be able to talk honestly and openly about what was happening to them. But one of the real positives we saw out of our survey was that practitioners responding to family violence have really pivoted and innovated in their responses to family violence. A lot of services moved to web-based and messaging service delivery. But we also heard that many organisations developed alert systems, so things like code words or signals, so that women could alert practitioners to the fact that they were at high risk. But and signal that they needed help, but without alerting the perpetrator. And practitioners told us that was really important because they had a sense often that perpetrators were right next to women in the homes and observing them if they were trying to make a call. Mm. And so it's great to see that there's there's been innovation in these services and the way that people are able to continue to provide support. I would imagine that many of these services have also been put under a lot of additional strain during the pandemic, both because of the nature of how they're providing, but also the increase in cases as well. So how are practitioners and support providers coping with the situation, both in terms of logistics and managing the amount of uh, demand for their services, as well as their own personal well-being? Mm. So a lot of the practitioners in Victoria told us that they rapidly transitioned to working from home and they pivoted really quickly to remote service delivery. But what our research did reveal was the significant toll that this is taking on practitioners who are doing this incredibly difficult work from their homes. Mm. 
Mm. So they talk to us about feeling heightened pressure and stress due to working during COVID-19, particularly because of the increased demand. And they expressed concern about potential burnout. They told us that there'd been a real breakdown between work and home, and they had difficulty separating their work from their home while they were trying to support women in their homes, so often taking crisis calls in their lounge rooms. Mm. So the wellbeing implications for practitioners remotely supporting women experiencing domestic violence are really serious. And we need to think about the ways that we can best support this frontline in our family violence response moving forward during the coronavirus. In interviewing those practitioners, did you come across any strategies that people are starting to use to cope with having to work from home with many of these crisis situations? We did hear some positive um, stories from practitioners, particularly we also conducted a study in Queensland. And in Victorian Queensland, some practitioners told us that their services had instituted like weekly check-ins, that we're checking in on practitioners' wellbeing. Some practitioners were also given extra annual leave days so that if they needed to take a break or were concerned about burnout that they could take a day off or they could be flexible in their working times to fit around their family obligations, particularly with the increased educational responsibilities on children. But we also heard from practitioners in some services that they'd actually hired in counsellors, particularly for practitioners and their families, to provide support for their mental health and wellbeing during this period. There is also a concern that in the past, the government has sustained a continued focus on domestic violence, but this Mm -hmm. may wane under the pandemic response. Has this been the case? And how can we continue to ensure that domestic violence does not fall from the political agenda? Sure. Well, it was definitely concerning this week to see the reports that only half of the $150 million federal funding package for family violence services had been distributed and the other half is not planned to be distributed until next year, which is concerning given that we know the increased prevalence and severity of family violence that is happening during these stage three restrictions and the subsequent increased demand on the family violence sector. So practitioners in Victoria said they were asked that while they welcomed the promised funding from both the Victorian government and the federal government, many of them told us that there had been a lag between the funding announcement and that hadn't materialised yet in the provision of additional resources to them and funding. And so the practitioners told us really that more financial support is needed to respond to this increased demand, particularly during stage three restrictions, but also into the recovery phase when, as we've talked about, more women will be able to go outside their homes and freely seek help. Um, In particular, what the practitioners reported to us was there was a really urgent need for governments to address the shortage in safe housing options for women and children who are trying to escape violent relationships during the pandemic. There was already a safe housing shortage prior to the pandemic in Australia, and that's really being felt acutely at the moment. In light of those those lessons and that, progression that we've seen and the not so good progress as well as we move further into the second wave and perhaps also in preparation for further waves that may occur what can we do better as 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 a society as neighbors and our service providers to support victims of domestic abuse 
Sure, well it's been really great to see in Victoria, Respect for Victoria has been running a really good awareness campaign, calling on the community to call out family violence if you see it during a pandemic. And I guess during this time, neighbours, friends and family can play a really critical role in supporting victims of domestic violence and facilitating their help seeking during the stay at home orders. So if you see warning signs or if you have concerns about someone's safety, you should call services like 1800 Respect and they can provide you information and advice about your concerns for another person's safety. Well, Naomi, thank you very much for sharing your research and also helping us become a, a better society and knowing how to deal and support each other through what is a difficult time for many people. Sure, thank you for having me. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Now, for this week's Tram Thoughts, we thought we might do a bit of a continuation on last week. So last week, I went and did a, a great session on poetry and how to start to break it down, what its purpose is. And we thought, well, why don't we all come with a poem and discuss them? So do a bit of a poetry breakdown and see how can we sort of depack a poem, what are its meanings, how can we interpret it differently? So to help kind of us start us to help us start off, we've got Iwin to give us a few tips, a rundown of kind of what we talked about last week, but in, in a brief summary. Yep. So the first thing I wanted to cover is what we, we covered off in the Atlantic article the other week, which is first off, um, we must go into this practice with understanding that poetry is not going to dramatically change our lives. It asks a poem asks you to pay attention and that is all. So we need to take these in a state of meditation rather than like looking for fulfillment. There's also the idea that a poem has no hidden meanings. The only meanings are present are those that you have not realized yet. So discerning takes practice. We shouldn't bash ourselves up if we don't get everything this time round. And the third one, which is not the Atlantic, this is my dad, uh, he pointed out that greatness is contextual. So he compared Ulysses by James Joyce to the hungry caterpillar and just wanted to remind us that every single piece is important in its own way and respect. So with that in mind, today we're going to try and read out our poems. We need to obviously read them to each other. Spoken Poetry is a spoken word art form. And when we're doing so, when we're breaking it down, we need to be conscious of things such as genres, forms, structures that may impact the rating. Where is this poem from? Who wrote it kind of thing? As well as trying to identify key movements, situations, or motifs within the poem. So that's kind of the, the miasma of things we're going to think about as we enter into this, this breakdown, I suppose. So I should jump right in. Um, so... The poem that I have, it's called Those Winter Sundays by Robert Hayden. 
Now, just to give a bit of context and background to Robert Hayden, um, I didn't just choose him because he's got the same name as me, first name. Um, so he's been, he was originally uh, born into quite a poor family in Detroit in the States and he grew up with quite severe short-sightedness. And so because he couldn't play sport, he then turned to books as a form of entertainment as a child. And so through that, he sort of became quite interested in poetry and literature and later on earned a graduate degree in English literature from the University of Michigan. And after that degree, he then became a teaching fellow there. And he was the first black faculty member in Michigan's English department at the time. So a lot of his poetry is really based on African American history and American history. And you'll start to see those themes come through the poem that I'm about to read. Uh, and the other interesting thing as well is he served as a consultant in poetry to the Library of Congress from 1976 to 78, which I thought was quite interesting. Uh, but here is the poem called Those Winter Sundays. Sundays too, my father got up early and put his clothes in the blue-black cold. Then with cracked hands that ached from labour in the weekday weather made, banked fires blaze, no one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house. Speaking indifferently to him, who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? So when I was reading this, I mean, I have some ideas, obviously, what's, what's going on. And we, I imagine each of us maybe have different interpretations or similar. Um, but I guess the thing that really stands out to me uh, is this idea of uh, familial love for me, this poem is about a, a character um, or a person who's, who's writing the poem um, and sort of the sense of maturity of they don't quite understand the sacrifices that a parent always makes for a child. And as a child, you sort of have frustration at your parents and you feel angry at them sometimes, but, and they're sometimes they're too tough, but that toughness, toughness often comes from a place of love rather than cruelty. And so I think this poem is kind of, it's a sort of interesting moment where you, I think feel like most people when they grow up, they kind of reach a point of understanding that their parents are doing things to really care for them, not to just be mean parents. Um, and this is kind of that moment when this person starts to realize that in, in hindsight, but what were your, what were your readings of the poem or thoughts? I definitely tend to have the same opinion as you Rob. The one thing that really, I really enjoyed about this poem. I think it's a lovely reminder that love is not always obvious. Exactly. Um, that, yeah, exactly what you're saying. Um, that by showing this particular experience that he's chosen to go with, um, it also shows that growth also gives way to understanding for both yourself and for others and what they do for you. I thought it was lovely in the way that it was able to wrap an experience around also a meaning in within the poem. Mm. Mm. 
I think also my reading from it, I got a lot of just going off basic emotional responses. I got a lot of anger from the poem, not for myself, but um, for who I would imagine is a father figure or the, the carer in this thing. And it's not necessarily an anger against the child or a begrudgement or resentment, but more so someone who has been worn down by society. So like the cracked hands imagery, the, um, you know, lonely offices, this sort of like, I suppose chronic angers of that house. Like I feel that as a teenage angst, but I also feel that in a family that perhaps doesn't have the luxury of communication or isn't on the same page in a lot of ways due to, as you said, like a burden of work or that sort of thing. Um, I also followed the tips from the poem and looked up austere because I wanted to make sure I knew exactly what it was. Um, And yeah, just that idea of like severe or the strictness of it and the rigidity. I, I got a lot of themes of like, different generations and not under and that generational gap the idea of someone who has been so much work to the bone that they are unable to have immediate emotional connection and so it's like how you see it as what jess was saying is love is not immediately obvious it's pouring love into the objects and the rituals around you mm-hmm. as a way of showing giving that back i suppose or, or, or attempting to make that connection so i i found it a beautiful poem because it was it was angry it was sad it was reflective and it was kind of like you know here's this person doing all they can for me and I couldn't recognize it at the time but seeing the the, the profoundness in those acts mm. years down the track when you're like this small thing him getting a, a room warm before I woke up to enter it that's a huge act in of itself because that's so much forethought mm. The other thing I really liked about the poem is the way it used space and kind of personified space. So when they say the chronic angers of that house, um, Mm. I guess part of me also wonders, is that the house a reference to the idea of love? Like is the house an embodiment of love that sometimes you're spending so much time caring for a house, i.e., you know, there could be a metaphor for your children or something like that, that you don't express love because you're spending so much time in care. Um, and then loves austere and lonely offices. That line, I think, is just really beautiful uh, in the way that it captures this idea of how love can be so absent of emotion, yet so potent at the same time. Um, the other thing I really, I think, is really clever with this poem is that in the first sentence, you get such a good idea of what's going on when it just says, "Sundays too, my father got up early." Just implies this sense of overworking and overtime and exhaustion and the way that can be expressed in just six words at an opening, I think is incredibly skillful. Yeah. I just like to jump in there. I think I really agree with you there. I like how direct this uh, poet was in the first line, but also how perhaps indirect he was able to be with the rest of his notions throughout each line in this poem. I thought that was really beautiful the way that he was able to do that. Mm, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that was my my poem. I did break one of the rules, which we discussed last week, which was to not look, not look up a meaning of it. But I did just to to see some other interpretations. <laughs> no, and that's good. That's good. <laughs> some of the other, I guess, key points that were being made is that the the persona, the person telling the story, and the father are likely from a African American family, and it's speaking about the the suppression of labor and the difficulties mm-hmm. that comes with that, and then the pressures that comes with that on families. And so it's kind of capturing that mood of what that experience is like. Um, That's kind of one of the key points that that came through. Can I just say also, um, just again, jumping on that imagery and identifying imagery sort of front. I mean, we've got such a harking to like natural 
things like ice, heat, cold water sort of stuff. And I have to say something like the line, um, hear the cold splintering breaking. Yeah. I love that idea of almost like shattering the frozen top of a, of an, uh, of a lake or something like that. Cause it's that sort of that breaking that really thin, you know, walking on eggshells sort of vibe that, that cracking, that attempt to break through all those sorts of things. I just, I don't know, the imagery within this poem does a, such a great way of um, bringing on a really consistent image throughout the poem, but doing it in different ways. As you said, embodiments of space really. And the other yeah. thing that it does is that all the, like when you speak about hot and cold, they're quite in extremes, like cold and splintering and you know, mm. cracked hands. Like there's no intermediate kind of, soft use of descriptives it's all quite mm. intense and so that kind of captures the the severity of the mood but also sometimes the harshness of the love but then the, the beauty of the love as well it there's no mm. kind of softness to it it's quite harsh it's yeah it's it's brute it's it's blunt mm. in some ways yeah mm. yeah so that a lovely poem to kick us off yes thank, thank you, you Ro. Thank that you. was yeah beautiful to, jess what have you got for us Yeah, so um, this is actually one of my favourite poems and I will explain further into my introduction. Um, But Jalal ad-Din Muhammad Rumi, uh, more commonly known as Rumi, was a 13th century Persian poet. Theologian and Sufi mystic um, born in the Bakh province of present-day Afghanistan. Um, Now you may or may not have heard of Rumi, um, but his poetry has been loved by and for readers of all religions, ethnicities and nations centuries after his passing. His poetry was written in Persian, Arabic, Greek, and Turkish, and influenced literature not only in the Persian Empire, but well into the Ottoman and Urdu languages. Um, I actually came across Rumi when studying ancient Middle Eastern literature at uni. Um, To this day, um, and it has been a while now, amongst all of my poetry books and saved poetry Tumblr posts, um, Rumi's works are still up there with a select few of my favorite pieces. One of my favourites and one that has always resonated with me, especially in 2020, um, when I reread my favourite pages in this book, is entitled The Guest House. I was a bit hesitant to actually give this poem in as it is a translation and I have actually done a tram thought on the beauty and the not so good parts of translating poetry, uh, but I'm going to go with it anyway because I, I do love it and I still see the beauty in English. So this is entitled The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So first off, and of course all poetry is taken in differently for each individual, as we have already said, um, I say that Rumi is is imaging um, this poem as a guest house, a a person as a guest house. The poem exuberates a complete essence for mindfulness. Um, The metaphor of the titled guest house does well to put Rumi's ideals into a kind of perspective. A guest house receives people of different gender, nationalities, cultures and temperaments. Uh, Each time a person comes into a guest house, the house and those people experience something new. For this metaphor, this poem explores the idea and is a reminder not to resist the thoughts and emotions passing through, but to meet them with courage um, and respect. 
it's wondrous when we receive welcome guests, feelings of happiness and love and all those good feelings in life. Um, but unwelcome guests in the guest house of your mind have the potential to bring up thoughts that are unsure or unhelpful if you let them. This poem also gives a gentle reminder that um, by thoughts and situations being guests, um, they will eventually leave no matter what they are, um, showing the chain of human experiences. On more challenging days, reflecting on my mental health or even external situations impacting me as an individual, as an example, 2020 restrictions and COVID lockdowns, I like to think of this poem and try and do as Rumi sort of expresses. Um, his words have empowered me to ride the roller coasters of challenges I have faced by having strength and even trying to enjoy the growth that comes from my worst days. So it's kind of a deep poem for me. Um, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts. I, I've really based my understanding of it on that obvious metaphor. So I just wondered if you had any other thoughts about it. Mine was quite similar. So I... Yeah, the first reading I thought is this is about a natural guest house and the importance of different people coming through. And then the second reading uh, was more about the idea of a human as a host for different emotions that just kind of pass through you on a daily basis. And this idea that you wake up and you might not know how you feel um, and how do you respond to that and, and work with that. Um, the thing actually is quite interesting about this poem is it, it's sort of the part of me that uh, I don't want to say triggered me, but made me, th I don't know, think not necessarily positively, but the, the, the last line, which is a guide from beyond. Um, so it says, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. And to me, this kind of uh, reminds me of those times where people say, oh, everything happens for a reason. And I completely understand that as a coping mechanism for difficult times. Um, but sometimes I do find it's a fairly privileged thing to say, that like, oh, something, everything happens for a reason. But often the people who say that are, coming from privileged backgrounds and it's something unfortunate that has happened and I don't know just that's something I find it's it's a really yeah it's hard to just articulate I wouldn't you <laughs> I, was, I was just gonna say I actually had um so just in response though I guide from beyond I had a very similar response to you Rob which is like mm -hmm. that toxic positivity yeah but I was thinking about it a little bit more in like reading this and I know that, you know, you're supposed to like, we're supposed to be thinking about context and we're supposed to be meeting the poem on the poems kind of context, not necessarily ours, but I tell you what, for me, one of the most amazing things about this poem is it reads like it could have been written yesterday. Yes. Like this feels so timeless. And when I was reading about it, really what I thought is I was like, wow, this is word for word what I've listened to for a lot of like African-American activists talking about Black Lives Matter movement and the complexities of something like being an ally and uh, confronting our violent history, both overseas and obviously here in Australia. So I take the same reading as you guys of the, the, the human being being a guest house. And I think, going, again, going back to our poetry reading tips, this is one of the poems where it's like the it's really good to look at the title for the, the idea because the guest house is the, 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 the consistent image. But yeah, looking, looking at that idea of like as a, almost like let's say as like a Black Lives Matter manual of how to be an ally, how to delve with these different processes and different things that you come into every day. Um, a guide from beyond really spoke to me as someone outside of your perspective who is helping you guide them through their their experiences yeah. so instead of putting a more biblical or sorry not even biblical a more like um godly i suppose reading to it or so which i thought potentially he would have been writing at the time who knows yeah. i was thinking more so um i like the idea of saying another human's experience and they are acting as a guide through their reality and that that's maybe bringing it into you 
Yeah, Edwin, I definitely have the same idea then. And Rob, obviously that did cross my mind because that is just such a cliche thing for people to say of a higher privilege and especially in the religious realm. Um, Quite obviously, he was writing at a time and he was quite religious. Um, But I think the beauty, and I have done a lot of reading up on Rumi, um, religious or not, a lot of people do seek out his poetry for what you're just saying then, Edwin, for social movements. And one of the other reasons why I chose this poem today is because it, it is a sort of a reflection on how we can sort of help ourselves cope um, and get involved in a lot of these social movements, Black Lives Matter and or, or anything else in this day and age. So, yes, I completely agree with you. I'm just thinking for, like, that example of the beautiful bit where he talks about, like, entertain all, all feelings that come into you um, in the way of, like, you know, with Black Lives Matter, the discussion around needing to feel uncomfortable in the confrontation of horrible truths and atrocities. Mm-hmm. And that idea of like, it's a, it is a violent process having to confront your own, you know, the, the furniture of your head, like your mind palace, let's say, right? Yeah. So that beautiful idea of like letting yourself get scrubs, letting yourself go through the deep cleanse almost. <laughs> um, and, and also like that, yeah, the idea of like, I mean, again, I wonder with mental health, how this, this poem stacks up and stuff like that and what sort of mind frame you need to be in this. But I, I think there's a beautiful, I think there is a beautiful, like, um, almost wave imagery going through of that idea of it, like it comes and it goes, it recedes and it, yeah. So I think oh, yeah. that's a, I, I'm sorry, this is going to be a very boring poetry comment because I, I love this one as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I just thought it was what you just said then, as well as the obvious metaphor and that of waves of human emotion. I think it was, it's, it's great. It's a great reflection to, if you see it in that way, to be able to put it towards your, how you go about these social movements that we're experiencing right now and to empower yourself. You're right. It's such a good pocket poem. It's a good one yes. to just pull out, as you said, on any day. Yeah. When you're, you're thinking, why am I dealing with this thought? It's like, ah, yes. Recenter. Rumi. Ah, Rumi. Yeah. Rumi but thank you. you. <laughs> thank you both. I really love the um, the imagery of the furniture inside your mind as if it's kind of like these heady things that just kind of sit around and you, you don't change them very often, but when you do change them, it significantly changes the experience of where you live. And it's kind of like, yeah. like your opinions or your, your, your assumptions about things. And like, it takes effort to change those. But when you do, your environment significantly change and how you see mm. your spaces significantly change. Exactly right. Like getting rid of your clunky furniture into hard waste, you know, like that's exactly <laughs> what's happening there. <laughs> exactly. it's, it's, it's delightful, uh-huh. isn't it? Because he says like clearing it out for some new delight. Like if you think about that in the way of like challenging and replacing a prejudice that you've had and the freedom or joy that it brings you to be able to get rid of something that you've been conditioned that's been unhealthy and mm. for you and others more importantly, to have the delightfulness of being able to love or to see something in a new way that you can appreciate. Like that's such a uplifting moment in the poem. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how he contrasts that with dark and light. Very cool. <laughs> <laughs> we love All right. It. All right. My poem to finish off is by the beautiful Toni Morrison and it's called it comes unadorned. So the poem reads like this. It comes unadorned like a phrase strong enough to cast a spell. It comes unbidden, like the turn of sun through hills or stars in wheels of song. The jeweled feet of women dance the earth, arousing it to spring. Shoulders broad as a road bend to share the weight of years. Profiles beach the distance and learn, breach the distance and lean towards an ordinary kiss, bliss. It comes naked into the world like a charm. 
Now, this little tiny poem by Toni Morrison, first off, Toni Morrison was an American novelist, essayist, book editor, and college professor, amazing writer, um, usually centered her works around the black female experience. And this poem, at least some of the thinking around it, uh, kind of fits into this sort of uh, discussion because this, this one poem comes as part of five other different poems called The Five Poem Collection which was published in 2002. So I find it interesting. This one's a relatively new one. And when I was reading it and reading up a little bit of context, it was rather interesting because Toni Morrison really does focus in on black females' lives, emotions, and journeys. And interestingly enough, Toni Morrison herself did not identify herself as a feminist which I was like, okay. Um, She said, in order to be free as I possibly can, in my own imagination, I can't take positions that are already closed. Okay, Tony, might disagree with you here, but she said that I like to leave the ending of, um, leave the endings open for reinterpretation, revisitization, and a little ambiguity, which I thought fit perfectly into the poetry context. So in that respect, this poem is a free verse. It's very fluid. Um, it only sold about 450 or only printed about 450 copies. So it was a very small circulation, which is very interesting because poets usually like to be wide read. And the poems seem to center around a departed woman or spirit and this idea of longing for a departed woman. And each poem explores this idea of kind of this departed ancestor almost in a different capacity. So for me, when I was reading this poem, I got instead of necessarily a direction like the last two we read, I got an image of kind of a moment in time where you are reminded of a memory or an impression that has been made upon you. And it comes back and floods back into you and overwhelms to then, and then kind of leaves almost, but it's this beautiful, natural, uh, yeah. Wave-like experience, I suppose. Hmm. Uh, And with that idea, I kind of envisioned the ancestor as this idea of like, present in that person's life and this beautiful idea of like you holding someone's spirit or memory or history with you as you go through your daily wanderings. So key themes for me in this poem hit around love, mortality, transgression, memory, and a certain sensuality. What do you guys think? Mine was completely different. And I don't know if that's correct or not, but no, I mean, Um, it it took (laughs) quite a while to try and, find an interpretation uh but what i kind of thought it maybe was referring to was the idea of progress of basic rights so this idea of unadorned as in not very flashy or flamboyant Mm. like basic rights aren't you know they aren't flashy they're basic and you know they're important they're kind of foundational but then, then, then she says, you know, but they're strong enough to cast a spell as in like they have power, but they're simple. Um, and then the, when she says it comes unbidden to mm. me, it really just, it's become, it comes not invited as in it's not invited by the ruling power or the ruling structural process that we're within. And so of course it wouldn't be invited because it, it's questioning that and it's challenging that. Um, but then it kind of, yeah, I was wondering whether it's a kind of a reflection on movements and how they the arise. Blooming, the blooming of a movement. Yeah. That's really interesting. It's cause, I mean, that kind of feeds into a similar, like if I'm going with the idea of an uninvited moment that suddenly overwhelms, the blooming of a movement, if, I'm really interested because that's like they're different interpretations, but they have a similar progression, I suppose. Yeah. And movements are uninvited. 
like there's there's absolutely there's, there's factor, and there's a, the reason there is a movement is because it is not in inviting it's it's responding to being not invited to what is existing mm. yeah I really, really loved that blooming of a movement because I was, after reading this, mine's really a mix of both yours and and Edwin and Rob's explanation of that. It was, mine's sort of like the reflect, it's like reflecting, reflecting the past for the purpose of the future. It was like a reminder that gets you motivated. It's like a reminder or like a memory that gives you motivation for a feeling that comes for the future. This is very philosophical how I'm trying to explain this, but Mm -hmm. I don't know, like it's not, I don't know what the feeling is. I really don't know what the feeling is. And I feel like that's mixed for, and it's an interpretation for the reader, Mm -hmm. but the strength in her lines, the beauty that she mixed with the strength of an individual. Like this one line really got me, um, the jeweled feet of women dance the earth. It shows power from a history for the unfolding future. And mm. so I think that was a beautiful context that you put it in. They're blooming for a movement sort of. Well, yeah. it's, it's, in, it's interesting, like touching on that because there are, sh- it, it starts off very individual. And actually when I did my first reading of this, I actually thought she was talking about death and just that idea of that natural death that kind of comes and takes. And, you know, we've seen a lot of like weird sensuality wrapped up into mortality before. So I, that was my first immediate thought. But looking at it, it starts off as this very individual moment and then it does spring out. I mean, we go from the individual person to then, as you said, women dancing the yeah. earth. And also the Profiles. line... Yeah, and also the line, shoulders broad as a road, bend to share the weight of years. So that really does feed into like what Rob was saying of that, that idea of unity. And also this idea of there is this weight of history behind us that a few people are trying to carry and sort of, I guess, challenge and question. I yeah, agree. it's it's like a, the reflection of the past and how we're moving forth in the future. That's how I see this poem as mm. a as a as a rhythmic sort of movement throughout the way that she expresses each line. Um, I think it's yeah. I just see the future from the past. That's what I see in this. That's really that's really exciting because I mean I, I did look up I did the same as you Rob and I looked up a few other interpretations outside of this and. S- there's a very little written on these poems because they are relatively new, 2002 and small. Um, and Toni Morrison also loves ambiguity. So she likes leaving it open-ended, but there was this idea of like a younger generation coming to the aid of an older group in that idea of like sharing the weight of that idea of celebration and stuff like that. There is definitely some theories around memory becoming intimacy in the way of like, you know, a kiss bliss, that sort of thing, like a physical uh, from a metaphysical to a physical thing. Um, and this, and this idea of like confronting a past to move onward. So I'm, I'm really glad you got that idea of futurism and stuff like that, because I think not only is that built very much into Toni Morrison's work with black futurism or Afrofuturism, but also, yeah, the, the, it's quite a, it's quite a soft poem in the way that it's kind of like, I, I see it as an unfurling flower. It's it's very delicate. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't push a particular. I don't think this the aim of this. The Tony, I don't think aimed to push anything upon the the reader. I think she mm. sort of intentionally left it for the readers, as every poem probably does. But I think she really pushed to have the reader condone and imagine their own thought process for the future from her lines. I d- I really liked it. I when I really liked this poem. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. No worries. <laughs> So I, I suppose that wraps up our, that wraps up our poetry. I, I have one last tip that I thought I'd hit people with before we left, which is reading a good poem doesn't give you something to talk about. It silences you. And reading a great poem pushes further. It prepares you for the silence that perplexes us all. So there you go. There's another, there's another thing to think about. Um, <laughs> yeah. I will.
uh, we're going to listen to follows on from a conversation held by the Australian Institute looking into the Aboriginal-led health response to the coronavirus. This is following on from a conversation we actually had a couple of weeks ago with Tracy, uh, the chairperson of Darabal Yerrigan in WA. The Aboriginal-led health response to COVID has been a huge success, and this has been due to a rapid response by community health services that I really think deserves more limelight. So we're going to jump into now an interview with Leslie from the Southwest Aboriginal Medical Service to explain basically what they did to manage the COVID threat and how they did it. And apologies, uh, the audio within this interview are a little echoey, so be sure to turn the radio up. This week, I have Leslie, the CEO of Southwest Aboriginal Medical Service in Western Australia, on to discuss the COVID-19 and community response. I want to start off by um, saying good morning, Leslie. Oh, good morning, and thank you for the opportunity to um, have a yarn with you about the work that we're doing over here on our country in, in, in the southwest of Western Australia. No worries. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I wanted to start off with the question with just this rapid response to COVID-19. Um, just with a summary of the changes that you and your organisation had to make in response to the announcement of COVID. Yes, well, thank you. So we knew very quickly um, that our early responses, um, you know, ensured that we were, it, it allowed us to implement strategies for communicating to the whole of our staff cohort within our organisation. Um, so that we knew that we were having a very coordinated whole of organisational approach and um, we made sure that those messages uh, were to the point and that all staff were on the same page because um, it was critical because we were deemed as an essential service. Mm -hmm. So we needed to be very clear about the messages that we wanted to send um, and ensure that our workforce were able to um, stay focused and stay safe as well. Um, our early response planning allowed us to be ahead of the curve um, with regards to hygiene and key messaging. And we saw that um, we had people coming in um, and we put in place those protocols around the hygiene and, um, and the key messaging. And, you know, uh, people complimented um, Swan on doing that and, um, you know, being able to uh, allow that to happen. We also focus very heavily on our communication strategy for for the larger mass communication um, key messages to our community. Um, we know that in the southwest regions and, and um, areas that uh, people who are our clients um, needed to hear this pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and they needed to hear the turnaround and the messaging. And in the messaging in a way that was also, you know, appropriate for our Aboriginal, the Noongar people in this region. Um, the strategy focused on very um, simple and clear messages, mm -hmm. uh, which was really important. Um, we had to identify very quickly uh, because of people, clients accessing our services, we had strict clinical assessment pathways created um, and they were implemented very quickly. So these pathways assessed all visitors into our building, no matter whether they were clients or visitors to the region or you know, um, new clients, um, but they were directed to the appropriate treatment that was needed. And um, so we had to ensure that we had a plan to keep both the staff and the community safe. And, and that played a critical role here because then everybody knew uh, you know, where they came in on this pathway, at which point of contact with the care um, and the role that they played. So we saw that as very critical and very important. And, that, and people were able to, uh, move through the process 
but also to understand the nature of the importance uh, of keeping everybody safe. That was key to this. Um, and the clinical assessment also meant that it was, you know, um, quickly we did an, out, an implemented an outdoor respiratory clinic um, so that, um, that that then very quickly made sure we needed to revise um, and be clear about our PPE equipment. And so we had shortages. We weren't prepared for this initially, um, but we had to move very quickly. Um, you know, we had we had a GP that went to Bunnings and, and purchased one of the masks. So, you know, it was about people, the staff also, um, for us to utilise their networking and their understanding of where they could secure some of this very quickly. Mm. Um, so um, we ensured that every day uh, we held our COVID-19 briefings. So we knew that we couldn't all be in the one room. So we just, people teleconferenced in and we also had people that were on um, audio uh, visual as well. Um, so we just wanted to make sure um, we still hold weekly meetings, uh, keep people um, abreast, um, but we're also preparing to ramp this up, given where some states are at now, mm. uh, we have to take every precaution again um, to make sure that those numbers in our area, are, you know, we want to keep it, um, we'll try to prevent some of that increasing. And we're seeing small increases over here in this region anyway. So um, we just need to make sure that we ramp up our messaging and everything that we were doing and maintain the way that we follow process um, through the really intense time of COVID-19. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, just a few changes to name a few, but um, I kind of wanted to get your perspective on some of the challenges that would have come up with this rapid transformation, such as issues like um, isolated elders or creating communication that needs to be culturally sensitive and, and, I suppose, meeting these challenges and the strength and the response that, that you guys had. Yeah, so, you know, um, as, as, as Aboriginal communities, our communities operate in a very collective uh, manner. Um, you know, larger family groups are responsible for the health and well-being of our communities um, and um, working to try to separate that would not be, we, we couldn't follow through that process. So it was obviously about how do we prepare and prep families um, and keep them ready. We also identified areas of where our elderly people who are very vulnerable, mm -hmm. um, making sure that they received um, to their homes, um, you know, um, messages, key messages that talked about letting people know up front that elders are living in this house here. Uh, there are vulnerable people here who have chronic illnesses um, and to be mindful of that. So putting up notices, um, making sure that we continued our home visits, but making sure we had, we were, you know, adequately um, prepared in the PPE equipment um, and putting in place the safe, safe distances, um, mm. you know, the social distancing measures as well. Um, but utilising uh, very intensely um, the telehealth um, opportunities here via phone. So we continue to, um, you know, check on our clients. Um, we wanted to also ensure that um, clients didn't stop coming in to the clinic if they needed to and if they were well, um, that they had their appointments secured because that continuity of care mm. is, was critical through this time as well and ensuring that, you know, um, clients had their medications um, and, um, you know, looking at areas of where elders could be taken if they needed to be isolated from, you know, the rest of the community. Mm. 
um, we had a lot of, um, we got a lot of fatigue in terms of very quickly, we had to have input into a lot of submission writing to try and, you know, there were offers, you know, and, and opportunities to secure PPE equipment, um, mm -hmm. sanitizers, but we had to put those um, uh, applications into corporate. A lot of corporate um, agencies were there to assist in this process but also, um, you know, making sure we were part of the mix in the submissions to government as well. So um, we knew um, this was an unknown. We, had not, we didn't know how we were going to address this. We knew that we had to follow the protocols from the government instructions mm. and the way that um, we needed to ensure the safety of our communities. Um, but the most important thing, like, as brokers here to our Aboriginal community, uh, we knew the landscape, we knew our people, we knew the best way to communicate um, and utilise our existing staff, um, but also making sure we look after our staff as well mm. Uh, mm. to continue to do the work. We had issues and challenges around, we weren't able to hold any more of our, um, you know, elders um, falls prevention programs because uh, people couldn't gather together. So yeah. how were we addressing that issue? So we were making sure we put packages together, we had little, um, um, you know, little uh, little packages that went out to, to you know, which, which had a number of things in them. Some of it was food, some of it was activities to do in the home, um, just little gifts and other things that, and sanitizers, things that they could find useful or keeping connected with our people was, was a priority here and not allowing them to become more isolated than, than um, so we had a big role that we played in that space. See, this is this is something I really wanted to touch on because listening to um, you talk about this, uh, as I mentioned before, this is kind of a conversation expanded from the Australian Institute. There's just this capacity for care and this this continue continual, you know, sort of looking out for well-being. And I, I wanted to touch on that because COVID's not just a physical health threat, but also you know through isolation and just the sheer endurance that it requires. It, it kind of attacks on all fronts. So it's I, I wanted to get your idea about maintaining well-being and how you did that within your community, especially through things such as like trust between staff and um, patients. You talked about, for example, working with this idea of voluntary disclosure and just that, that two-way relationship, two-way street between, you know, everyone that you were working with in kind of addressing COVID-19. Yeah, absolutely. Look, you know, um, firstly, we also had to ensure that we had opportunities for our own staff mm. to be able to work from home if that was required because they could have been exposed or people in their community, in their families exposed here. And um, it was about voluntary disclosure. So uh, that was key here because we couldn't have um, medical staff coming in um, who potentially, you know, could have came in contact um, with someone in the space. Mm. So absolutely uh, important. We worked very quickly on putting together um, policies, um, COVID leave policies, working from home policies, um, and we tried to ensure that in the workplace we had, you know, it was a balance of so many people, staff working from home, um, so that if staff got sick uh, in the workplace, others were able to come in. So, you know, with our staff, we also ensured that we provided lockers um, and um, bags uh, and additional uniforms and clothing so that they could change into those when they came into the clinic or when they left the clinic to go home. Mm. Um, so those were other things just to ensure that we were doing our part in keeping the community um, safe there as well. Um, and it was about, you know, the disclosure that if, if 
I think uh, it, the main point is the, the community and our clients trust us swans to do the right thing here. And I don't think we would have been able to achieve uh, the you know the good outcomes that we did achieve if that trust wasn't well and truly established, you know, well before COVID. Um, and you know, doing teleconferences, um, uh, telehealth uh, videos, even that is very, you know, it's very invasive, I suppose, and intruding. And so, you know, getting our elders to be able to speak over the video to our doctors or to, you know, um, the nurses that they needed to to continue their care, um, you know, um, we, were we managed to do that well, you know, also. So, um, very important. Uh, the mental health of our, not only our staff, played a big role, the anxiety of them coming into work, mm. knowing that they could be exposed to COVID-19 um, virus. So, um, we also, you know, had um, opened uh, lines up for our um, community around mental health, um, making sure that we stayed connected with them was key to this. And it was also a very high priority for us to implement those welfare checks, bringing them up, uh, talking to them, seeing how they're going, making sure we try to capture as many clients as we could in the community. Um, activity packs for our kids, um, so that the kids also had things to do, you know, and um, um, contacting our clients to make sure they were getting their medications, um, making sure we had the, the, the packages, the posters uh, for our vulnerable clients and our elders um, so that they could display them outside their homes. Um, the important thing was being, being able to be a little bit flexible with our staff, um, but also making sure their mental health and wellbeing was being looked after and our clients. That was a critical point here. Uh, we saw a lot of anxiety. Uh, we didn't want people coming in um, and, you know, being being upset or exposing others to the virus if they had it, come in contact with it. So the biggest thing was the trust issue. Absolutely. And I mean, this, this, might, this second question might feed into what you've just answered here, but I wanted to talk about the idea of engagement with communities and true authentic connection with communities rather than, I mean, for a lot of us and a lot of the health clinics we've seen in Melbourne, it's been a very like um, deeply suspicious process or it's been like um, health clinics have kind of felt almost severed from the community, if that makes sense. We've seen some real discrimination to, um, you know, certain communities accessing health and stuff like that. And I, I wanted to get your opinion on just how one builds a health service that is really receptive, engaging and caring for its community. This might seem like an obvious question, but I wanted to get your perspective on it. Well, you know, for us, um, engagement with our communities, um, that's, that's the... Uh, you know, that's the key here for us. We engage with our communities in a variety of ways, and um, but that true connection is the key, and I can't reiterate that enough. Um, and that's been built up over many years, um, and so we always take that into consideration. I think it played a huge part here in ensuring that our communications was not about uh, to cover just physical health messages, mm. but it was about family health as well. Um, mental health and connection to culture and spirit and um, you know so that our spirit is healthy while we're trying to get through the space as well um, so all of these are as important to each other and they all play a part in um, understanding from our staff um, all those issues when they're dealing with our clients 
um, connecting to their spirit, their mind, their, their family and the body and keeping all of these things is healthy. So that's the approach that we took. So it wasn't mm -hmm. done in isolation. It yeah. wasn't done in a clinical um, space to, to, you know, to execute fear and anxiety. Mm -hmm. It was to also say, you know, we've been guiding you on this path for many years. What we're talking about now is um, this is about keeping you safe here in this space. Sure. But also we, we need to maintain your existing health issues, you know, which, which may have occurred and emerged through this time. In a normal time, um, this would have meant us hosting, we, we do a lot of community barbecues where people come together. Mm -hmm. um, we facilitate men's and women's groups. Um, we do exercise groups. And so it gives you a space to deliver meaningful health messages. So all of a sudden, this was all pulled away. Mm. And so we had to think how we were going to utilise our, our marketing and communication messages and try to keep some of that, um, those elements about we're here to, to keep you safe. And, um, you know, during COVID times, I think it's um, important to truly connect with that person. I think we did that really well. Um, and the delivery of the packs and the phone calls were so important to make sure that the people felt that we didn't forget about them, mm. um, and that we were there, um, even though we couldn't physically be there um, yeah. at times. Um, we needed to make sure that, um, you know, they know they're being looked after. Absolutely. And I mean, uh, sorry to t touch on it, but I, I think it's such a fantastic idea, for example, having kids packs, because I know that was a massive thing. Everyone went home and all of a sudden kids had nothing to do for yonks. So even simple things like that just add to making the experience so much more, um, you know, able to, to, to go through COVID-19 lockdowns and isolations and the massive changes. Um, my, my final question I really wanted to ask was, do you think there are some lessons that we can learn from the crisis and the way that you guys have radically adapted um, in the way we deliver health and the way we take health out of this crisis? I think there have been many lessons for us, um, from everyone from this pandemic, and um, what we've learned, how important it is to stay connected mm -hmm. um, and to deliver services based on the actual needs of the community. Uh, at this time, like, you know, through COVID, we had to pull heavily on telehealth. Mm -hmm. um, and this was very foreign for some of our clients. And um, so, you know, our staff had to immediately now be able to, you know, the, the way that it's delivered through a video conferencing is very different. And, and people, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, people have to get into that space and, mm. and come across as, you know, even though um, there's also that anxiety around well, what's happening, this is being recorded, what's mm. happening with these messages, you know. Medical services and what we deliver is very confidential information. So we had to look at how we balance that. You know, our Aboriginal uh, community-controlled health organisations um, need to be properly funded and, and supported to deliver services to our people. Um, you know, program funding is very rigid in terms of what you can and what you can't do with it. When you're confronted with this type of, um, you know, uh, crisis response, you know, you don't have time um, you've got to make decisions too. So mm. you've got to understand what are some of the flexibilities that are here and what are some of those added resources that are required urgently um, and how um, easily that is at our disposal to, to be able to access that. We learned 
also that the importance of a, a whole organisation approach and indeed whole community approach to these type of crises. And for us, one of the key messages is um, looking at and analysing, going back now retrospectively and looking at what we did do well, why did we do that well, um, you know, where we could have strengthened in this area, but also um, it's now prepared us in a, a step, next step uh, to be able to execute pretty quickly, um, you know, things in place that um, we need to be doing uh, to, to when we're confronted with a crisis. Um, but the biggest key message I think that we learned, um, and in our communities, in our Noongar people and Aboriginal people across the country, I believe, you know, our um, messaging and um, how we communicate has been handed down from generation to generation. And um, very communication and um, the importance of clear communication um, and how it's, um, the messages are delivered in a culturally appropriate way and sensitive way to our people is very effective. And that can be done, um, you know, we have, you know, we haven't, we're going into a digital era. So mm. um, allowing us to uh, be able to facilitate to our clients and our communities is key. And we have to be, you know, we have to be resourced to, to ensure that we have that opportunity to explore how innovation and, and telecommunications uh, can play a greater role here in delivering, you know, those messages. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Leslie, for coming on and sharing all of that. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time because I know with COVID-19, it's a, it's a constant battle to keep on top of it. Oh, absolutely. And we can't um, drop the ball anywhere. We've got to stay vigilant. Um, we certainly are uh, ramping up um, where we're at now with our COVID uh, messages and our, um, the way that we are, the activities that, you know, we need to be doing. So, um, we just have to be very vigilant and um, it's too important because um, mm. we know uh, potentially uh, the ramifications if this was to get into our communities. Hi, we're, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community, Community Radio 855am. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and we're coming up to the end of our show. So it's a bit of wrap up of what we did today. So I spoke with Naomi Fitzner about the impact of COVID-19 on domestic violence and how a lot of service providers are using this moment to really innovate in how they provide their services in a very difficult moment, but also the impact it's having on many of the providers' mental health and their ability to deliver these services moving forwards. And I spoke to Leslie from the uh, Southwest Aboriginal Medical Service in Western Australia and um, basically just talking about the Aboriginal-led health response to COVID-19, which has been a, a beautiful success and a beautiful testament to patient and professional relationships and community building. Um, a point I wanted to revisit is the fact that during COVID response and, and then thinking about how they needed to adapt, uh, this Southwest Aboriginal Medical Service ensured that families had like kid packs and things like that to make sure that kids sitting at home bought out of their brains, you know, would also have something else to do. So it's just this beautiful, holistic uh, approach to well-being. And we also today had a poetry corner, which was pretty funky. Yes. <laughs> who knows? Well, we might try that again. <laughs> I, think, I think so. So for, for those who didn't listen, you should listen back. But we all brought a poem and we all discussed what we thought it meant 
And sometimes we had different opinions. Sometimes we had the same opinions. It was quite interesting to sort of see how a single piece of prose can produce these diverging interpretations. Absolutely. Uh, but thanks for, for sticking around. And up next is Stick Together. And just before we had Earth Matters. But see you next week. <laughs>